Good morning, church. Good morning. What a joy to be together today. Amen. Amen. We are continuing our Advent series, and I'm, I'm, really, I'm really hyped on this. I think this is a really cool thing for us to do. I know a lot of us didn't grow up in faith traditions or church cultures where a season, a formalized season of Advent was maybe a normalized thing, but I think it's actually really healthy for us. And I'll, and I'll give you two reasons why before we jump into it. I, th- I think for some of us, Christmas is really just this magical, amazing time, right? Like it's full of all these really specific family traditions and experiences and memories. And it's so easy to be all in on those things with really intense expectations on those things. And coming to church and lighting the Advent wreath and having these moments that kind of force us to slow down and draw back to the, the biblical reasons behind Christmas, I think can be a really grounding thing, right? It can be this really beautiful reminder that even though Christmas is kind of magical for a lot of people and is really wonderful, it's ultimately not about stuff, but it's not only not about stuff, it's not about traditions. It's not even about time with family and presents and all that fun stuff and pictures that are really Instagrammable. It's, it's about remembering our Christ, remembering our Messiah, right? And I think, I think that grounding experience in some of these ancient traditions that we bring into our gathering can be really helpful. On the flip side of that, I know for some of us, man, Christmas is actually really difficult. It actually brings forward a lot of negative feelings and memories and emotions. Maybe it connects you to brokenness in your own family or people you've lost and those kind of sorrows. And if that's you in the room, I think this practice is still grounding and helpful. I think it draws us back to the truth that we sang this morning, that our Messiah is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. That in the midst of hard times, in the midst of painful memories, he loves you and he is with you and he sees you. It's grounding. I love it. So today, in that note, we have lit, or I guess clicked on, the faith candle, uh, which means we will be talking about faith. We're going to talk about faith from Matthew chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, By the way, real quick note, if you're in this space, especially if you're visiting with us today and you don't have a physical copy of God's Word, we at Emmanuel Fellowship Church are really passionate about access to God's Word. Uh, We have house Bibles under a bunch of the seats. You're welcome to grab one if you don't have one. And by the way, if you don't have one, you're welcome to take that home as a gift or even talk to one of our pastors and we'll get you one that's a little nicer. So we're working our way through Matthew. And by the way, uh, Jesse mentioned this. We're going to be in Matthew a long stinking time. Like we're going we're gonna to take a good, a good year to like multiple years to work our way like completely through this book beginning to end. Uh, and I love that we, we get to start it with Advent and look at these nativities. Is that, is that me? That was me. Listen, guys, we're here. We're in it today. Uh, we're going to, 
I love that we get to start by looking at these Christmas nativity stories in the context of our Christmas celebration. I think that's really cool. So uh, Matthew chapter 1, go ahead and read with me. We're going to start in verse 18. In the 18th verse, the first chapter of the gospel according to Matthew tells us this. The birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the, by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me this morning. Father, we ask as we take a few minutes to work our way through this text, Lord, that you would just just be our discipler, God. I pray that you would help open our eyes afresh for many of us, Lord. uh, Give us fresh eyes to look at and consider a really familiar passage in a really familiar churchy time of year, Lord. Help us uh, to stop and be present, to not consider our afternoon plans or what our week looks like or what our schedule looks like over the course of this month, but help us, Holy Spirit, to slow down and be quiet and be present in this moment and hear from you what our hearts actually need. Lord, you are our teacher. You're our discipler, and we trust you to illuminate your word to us today. So we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, I think this text is interesting because it gives us the story exclusively from the perspective of Joseph, right? Did you kind of catch that piece? I think we're used to, as church people, reading the Christmas story as kind of this conglomerate of what all the Gospels bring to the table in terms of teaching us. And as a result, the Luke account of Mary's perspective, which is a little longer and gives more detail, is usually given the majority of space when we think about and consider this story. I think, I really think like that's fine. The Luke account is beautiful and you should read it and study it this Christmas season. But I think reading Matthew's account by itself has some really unique and illuminating things that I think will be helpful for us. Remember last week, Jesse talked about this idea, kind of some of Matthew's goals and purposes and the writing of his whole book. And that comes out already, even in this first chapter. One of Matthew's main concerns in writing his gospel. Remember, when Matthew wrote, the book of Mark already existed and was in circulation, right? Like it wasn't like God's people didn't have access to the story of Jesus. But Matthew looked out at the church and looked at the needs of the church and said, I think another one would be helpful. And so he chose to write his gospel, to put it out into the life of the church, to speak and point out some unique aspects of the gospel story, specifically to the ethnically Jewish part of the church. In early church life, when Christianity hadn't expanded much 
past Jerusalem and Palestine and Antioch, the majority of Christians were still ethnically Jewish, right? And so Matthew really writes from this perspective, trying to help the Jews see Jesus in the context of the whole of the Old Testament. He's very concerned with theologically and scripturally establishing that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, Two, two terms for the same thing, essentially meaning God's anointed savior for his people. That God is, has called someone out from amongst his people to free his people. This is something the Jewish people have been expecting, anticipating, looking forward to for generations. And Matthew gives a lot of energy in his gospel to make sure that you can see the ministry of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus inside the context of a lot of the teaching of the Old Testament. And so we see that really leveled out, particularly in this text. The Messiah is to be a son of David. And by the way, Matthew chooses to open his text with a genealogy, right? Like the Lord blessings to Jesse for preaching an entire sermon on the genealogy and just confidently, just confidently pronouncing every single name. Just like, oh my gosh, that's, mm, wow. Anyway, Matthew starts with a genealogy, and so he lets us know right out of the bag where this is going, right? Like there's no suspense to it when we get to this story of Jesus' birth because he's already said explicitly more than once, Jesus is the Messiah. He is a son of David. And then he goes and shows you exactly how Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David in his line. And then we start our text, and the only real hanging piece that's actually really important is this. Jesus is not, according to the text, the Bible son of Joseph, right? So how is Jesus actually a son of David? How does that work? Matthew obviously already believes that. He's given us the genealogy, but then he hands us this text. And I think, I really think, guys, this is going to help us kind of pick apart some of what God has for us today as we not only consider this text, but consider what it means to be a people of faith. I'd like to walk through this text and pick out a couple of the historical and cultural elements that I really think will illuminate the narrative. But at the end of the day, just to let you guys know where we're heading with this, this text is going to point us one direction, and it's this. Joseph was a godly man and a man of faith. He believed God. He stood in a long line of righteous, godly people who took God at his word and believed him and walked forward in faith, obeying God, even when it had real and painful consequences. This is the legacy Joseph, the father of Jesus, leaves us, you know, apart from fathering Jesus, the Messiah, right? Like that part's pretty big. But, but when we look at this narrative, what we're going to see, I think, clear as day is that the life of following God is a life of faith. It's a life of trust. It's a life of moving forward and giving your unconditional yes, regardless of the circumstances. And again, we're going to see a beautiful example of that in Joseph. But Joseph sits in the context of the whole of this book that shows us in story after story, narrative after narrative, person after person, that God's people trust him. And they walk by faith. Okay, so let's dig into this text. 
So the story starts with this idea, Joseph is betrothed to Mary, and during the engagement period, it's found out that she is pregnant, right? This is kind of how it starts out. This needs just a second to explain kind of the custom of Jewish betrothment and how it worked to kind of put us in that context. The first thing is this. You have to understand, at this point in history, in this part of the world with these people, the vast majority of marriages were arranged by parents. Now, that doesn't mean that the Jewish folk didn't marry for love. It simply meant if you loved someone, you had to go to your parents and be like, hey, this is the person I want to marry, and they would get to work negotiating it. And there was an actual real concrete business aspect to this as the father of the bride-to-be and the father of the groom-to-be would sit down and haggle out an actual bride price. How many sheep, lambs, money, whatever resources are you willing to give me for the privilege of marrying my awesome daughter? And they would go back and forth and haggle and they would land on an actual legally binding contract. Now, really quick, I'm just going to let you know this before I keep going. A little bit of this is going to be distasteful to your modern Western sensibilities, but it's just what it is. You got to sit with this because this is the historical reality for a minute. So this betrothment contract was a legally binding business arrangement. But here's the problem. They didn't get to choose the length of their engagement. In general, the betrothment lasted pretty close to a year, plus or minus a little bit, but around a year. And during that time, the groom-to-be was expected to get his financial and literal house in order. He had 12 months to make sure his business, his trade, and his literal physical house were established and ready. That was his part of the contract. You've got 12 months to have this much money in savings to build a house that you can take my daughter to and live in, right? Like this is part of the deal. On the other side of that, the legal, the legal piece, the legal obligation of the father of the bride was to keep her pure and ready and as described in the contract for the wedding day. During this period of betrothment, the, the groom-to-be and the bride-to-be were not allowed to interact outside of just like seeing each other in the town square. They were not allowed, except in really intense circumstances, to ever be alone together. They weren't supposed to really talk to each other, right? It was this period of purposeful and intense building up of longing to build up anticipation toward the moment when their marriage could finally be consummated, right? So this is what we're sitting in. We're sitting in this idea that Joseph has, for whatever reason, he's gotten into this betrothment with Mary. And by the way, the text seems seems really clearly to point us to the idea that Joseph actually really does love Mary and care for her. This is not a marriage of convenience or business, but a marriage of affection. And in the midst of their betrothal period, Mary is found to be pregnant. Now, I want you to take a minute to put yourself in this space. Matthew is really clear, really careful to go out of his way to let you know Mary is pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Luke gives you this whole big narrative on the front end about an angel coming to Mary and speaking to her and the whole deal. Matthew skips all that and it's just like, here's a genealogy. I know you'll all want this for all eternity to read at the beginning of your Advent devotionals. And then after that, I'll just say this, Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's, That's what Matthew gives you. But we know that. But do, like, take a second and put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Joseph is at a point in his life 
where his entire future is in front of him. He's in a stage in life where he's taking every extra job he can, working every extra hour he can to scrape and save every penny he can while he's literally physically building a house, probably in his dad's backyard because that's how they did it back then, putting all his time and energy into building and preparing for his future with his beloved. And you can imagine those moments in the town square going to get supplies, going to, I guess, the you know, Bethlehem equivalent of Home Depot and like getting some extra lumber, seeing her at the well or whatever it is. You can see the anticipation building. And then he finds out she's pregnant. And Joseph knows, like, mm, that wasn't me. <laughs> That's really painful. I mean, that would feel like a pretty big betrayal. And to make matters worse, she's not even owning the wrong. She's doing this thing where she's saying, no, God appeared to me and told me the Holy Spirit was making me pregnant. Trust me, Joseph, it's fine. I didn't cheat on you. God did it. (laughs) Uh, Right? Like, we know the truth of the story, but I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute. That's a ludicrous explanation, right? That's painful. That's a deep heart betrayal. But Joseph, and by the way, you can go read this in Deuteronomy 22. There are very specific and brutal laws in place for young betrothed women who break their betrothal contract. If a young betrothed woman is found to be pregnant, and the man who made her pregnant is not willing to step up, admit it, pay a, pay a price to break the betrothal contract and then pay a, a betrothal bride price over the top of that, the woman can be prosecuted for adultery and even put to death. Capital punishment. It's intense. It makes sense that a young lady, like we're talking like a young lady, like 14 or 15, in that scenario might try to find a way to get out of that scenario, Right? But Joseph, we're told, is a righteous man. Joseph actually cares for Mary. He loves her. He does not want to expose her to shame or the potential of real harm through prosecution. So instead, he decides to just quietly break off the engagement and formalize a divorce. He doesn't want to bring her to court and charge her with adultery, which he had the legal right to do. Instead, they're just going to get their dads back in a room because you only need two legal witnesses and they need to just give her a certificate of divorce and let her go do her thing. And he won't expose her and she can just kind of hide away, right? This is his, in his mind, act of compassion, right? But then God intervenes. I, I, I love this piece. We get this kind of confusing wording in verse 20. It says, you know, after he considered these things, really kind of leaning into this language. Like, it's letting you know, like, Joseph has thought about this a lot, and he's locked in. This is what I'm doing. I've given this a lot of thought. This is the direction I'm going. So after Joseph has made up his mind and is putting his plan in action, then Yahweh intervenes. And God comes and speaks to Joseph through an angel in a dream and just confirms everything Mary said. She really is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. God really did do this. 
And not just that, God has a task for Joseph in the midst of all of it. I love this piece. God comes, he confirms to Joseph the truth of what Mary has said, and then he hands Joseph a task. He is to marry Mary. I'm going to say Mary, Mary like 10 more times this sermon, so if you need to giggle at that, get it out right now. Mary, Mary. Okay. (laughs) He is to go through with it and marry his betrothed, marry her in spite of the fact that she's pregnant, and he is to name this son Jesus. That's the task he's given, right? Name this son Jesus. In this culture and at this time, for a man to name a child was to formally accept him into both the family and the tribe. To formally name a child you didn't create was formally adopting that child. God is telling Joseph to marry Mary and adopt Jesus. And there's a reason for this. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He will save God's people from their sins. This baby Jesus will change the whole world. He's the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies that his people have been waiting for. He is the Emmanuel. He's God with us. And God wants Joseph, of all people, to be his dad. I love that. I don't know about you, but as like a papa to some little kids myself, that hits really hard. God. God the Father, God the Father, the creator of the universe, looks at his son and then looks at Joseph and says, I want you to be the one to raise my boy. I want you to be the one to be there. And he scrapes his knee when he has nightmares. I want you to teach him how to shave, how to love and serve his neighbors, how to properly prepare the sacrifices and pay the temple tax. I'm sure most of you guys know this, but this year Kim and I began fostering for the Missouri Baptist Children's Home. And I'm just telling you guys, there are few privileges on this earth that are as sacred as stepping in and parenting a child who needs a parent. And this is the calling God the Father hands to Joseph in this dream. Now this is a major 180, right? You've got Joseph, young Joseph, I mean, legit, probably 18, 19 years old, saving, scraping by, preparing for his future. His entire life has just crumbled apart. The the future he envisioned for himself went away when he got this news. And as he's thought through and processed what needs to happen next, he lands on what in his mind is the most compassionate answer to quietly divorce her and not expose her to public shame or danger. And he's trying to pick up the pieces of his life. And in the midst of that, God appears to him and says, Joseph, I mean, yeah, cool. But here's the thing. She was telling the truth. And actually, I need you to marry her. I need you to name this child and raise him because everything she said is true. He is the Messiah. And I'm going to save my people through him. And I need you to raise him. I need you to care for him. That's a big 180. That's a massive shift from what he was thinking the night before, right? And yet, what we see in our text is that Joseph believed God. He believed God. 
He said yes to the calling that God handed him. He allowed his personal dreams to die on the altar of faith and obedience to his God. I love how this text ends. Joseph marries Mary. That's it. (laughs) He cares for her in her pregnancy. He abstained from sex until the child was born. And finally, the text ends with him naming the boy Jesus. He brought the boy into his family and named him, making him a son of David. By the way, this is not the main point of our text, but this, we would be remiss if we didn't like stop for just a quick second and mention this. This text is pretty solid theological evidence of what God thinks about adoption, right? That Jesus being adopted into the family of Joseph makes Jesus a son of David, puts him in his line. Again, not our point today, but worth, worth considering. Matthew doesn't give us any of the extra details. He doesn't tell us about the inn, the census, the, the barn in the middle of the night. The bar- he just says he married her, took care of her in the pregnancy. Kid is born. He named him Jesus. Because that's what any good husband and dad would do. Care for their wife, care for their kid, name them and draw them into the family. Joseph has said yes to God and fully accepted the calling God has given him. Now, really quick, we got to sit for a second and consider the cost that Joseph counted and paid for his faith and his obedience. See, for Joseph, the social pressure would have been toward him at the minimum divorcing Mary, but probably even prosecuting her. You see the way, again, this is distasteful, but you see the way Jewish men consider marriage and infidelity in marriage multiple times over the course of the gospel. When you see the way the adulterous woman is drawn out and religious leaders are trying to convince Jesus to condemn her and kill her, right? Like the, the cultural social pressure of the day would have been, this is her fault. You need to skewer her on this. But Joseph doesn't just honor her and protect her by divorcing her. He accepts her and marries her, which would have just been a way, would have just told the entire community, actually, it was Joseph who led her into sexual immorality and he's just owning his sin. That would have been, that would have been the social cloud that hung over their family. The minute she started showing and he still had a wedding day planned, the entire community would have been like, oh, well, this guy's a dirtbag. He led his betrothed into sexual immorality. Yeah, good, good, good that he's marrying her and owning up for his mistakes, right? And remember, Joseph is a tradesman. He runs a small business. He's a carpenter. This is the kind of thing in that religious community that could have real financial impact on his family, people's willingness to patronize his business because of his reputation in the community, right? And by the way, Joseph had no clue about this at this point. But his saying yes to Mary, Mary, and Father Jesus wasn't just him saying yes to people making a whole lot of evil assumptions about him and social scorn and potential financial consequences. He was saying yes to just in a few short years, grabbing his family and putting everything he owned in a duffel bag and fleeing in the night because the king was trying to kill him and his family. And then living as a refugee on the run for years. That's what Joseph was saying yes to the young man who just a few verses prior was planning out his future and his home with his brand new bride. It's a big, 
price Joseph paid to say yes to God, to walk in faith, to trust that God is who he says he is and that his way is good. See, here's the thing. We have, we have the benefit of hindsight. What a privilege Joseph received. I mean, he got to father the Messiah, right? He got to hold Jesus on his lap and feed him his first solid food, like those kind of beautiful dad things, right? Got to teach him how to play whatever the Jewish equivalent of baseball is. <laughs> baseball. What a privilege Joseph had. But if we're, if we're honest enough to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes for a minute... I think we can see that in the moment, this probably didn't feel like a privilege. In the moment, this felt like a really, really big cost. Felt like a lot of suffering. Felt like a lot of pain and injustice. And yet Joseph believed God. Joseph walked forward in faith and obedience treated Mary like his wife, treated Joseph like his son, did all the things you would expect a good husband and dad to do. Of faith and obedience. This is the week of faith. And Joseph, said this a couple times, is a beautiful picture of faith. But let's pick apart that idea for a few minutes. This is already said really beautifully in our Advent reading. But I think it's important. Faith is a strange concept in our day and our culture. My friend Andy, who's an atheist, would say a lot of what we heard already. The faith is just believing in something without any enough evidence to actually support the belief, <laughs> right? The faith is a logical leap where you shut down your reason and just decide to believe something because you want to for whatever reason. And by the way, this idea isn't just restricted to my buddy Andy or like the R atheist Reddit. This, is the, this kind of idea about faith in this day and age, is the common idea about faith. I believe if you started surveying your friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers, you know, what do you think faith is? They may not say it exactly that way, but the majority of them would probably say something along the lines of believing in something without evidence. <laughs> right here, we have one of the most famous passages about faith. Joanna Busby did this piece, by the way. Make sure you come up and look at it uh, when we're done today. It's really beautiful. And this verse is really encouraging to me because it reminds me that even though our culture says one thing about faith, it's just, even though it's like the cultural narrative about the idea of faith, like it is the way this idea is represented, communicated, defined in our culture, it's not actually accurate. Faith isn't believing in something regardless of evidence. Faith is trust. It's trust for future, future decisions based on evidence observed. In the past and the present. And by the way, we practice this kind of trust and faith every single day. It is impossible to live in the world without an overwhelming sense of destructive fear and anxiety without faith. I'm just going to tell you. I'm guessing most of the people in the room didn't do too much to check the sturdiness of the chairs in here before you sat on them. A couple of you are like, I did check the sturdiness of the chair. We just got past Thanksgiving, and I am not sure these are rated for this. <laughs> the reason for that is simple. 
You trusted that the chairs would hold you up, right? You've likely sat in plenty of chairs in public places in your lifetime. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that the like the majority of evidence points to the idea that if someone sets out a chair in a public place and you sit in it, it's probably going to hold you up, right? That's the majority of your experience around that kind of thing. And a lot of you have been in this room before and sat on a good number of these chairs before. And so you're just like, no, these chairs are fine. And you don't think about it. You just trust it and sit down. You just pick one and sit. It's normal. It's the way we live. Although I will say this kind of faith failed me really drastically one time. I was on a trip to Mumbai, India <laughs> to visit some missionaries and church planners. And I got invited to teach at this like church planning cohort. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like full on like Chinese underground church, like secret seminary, but it was like, hey, this is illegal. So don't tell anyone this is what we're going to do. And so we're in this back room in this hotel and it was me and a couple other guys. And we were supposed to give a lecture to all these guys who were being trained up to plant churches around India. And this room is a tile floor. And it was full of these probably 15-year-old plastic lawn chairs. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? That like stack. And so I'm the second speaker. And so the guys that they're talking, and it's like this really, like it's this really heavy space, right? Like these are people who are like taking real risks to take the gospel forward. And they're like, oh, we're so glad you're here to teach us, you know? And so I go in the back and pick a chair and sit down. And then I sprawled out over the entire floor because the chair shattered. <laughs> Oh, man, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, the majority of the chairs I experienced in India were 15-year-old plastic lawn chairs. I don't know why, but everywhere I went, that's where they were, and I spent the entire rest of that trip fully inspecting every inch of every chair before I sat on it, right? But I don't do that anymore. I'll tell you why I don't do that anymore. That's a terrible way to live. That's a terrible way to live. One crack sprawled out on the floor will get you there for a little while, but eventually the pure convenience of not having to actively think about that all the time will get you to just go, I don't know, it's only one chair that broke underneath me. Most of them are fine. I'm just going to sit and not worry about it. And then here you are a couple years later and you just never even think about it. Because that's how faith works out in real life. It's very useful. <laughs> It's very useful. But when your faith is in flawed things, sometimes it will bite you in the butt. Crack, smack, a whole bunch of laughing underground church planners. This, that has to balance out with this idea, right, that it's a pain to live with that kind of worry, that kind of constant vigilance to make sure everything's not going to bite you in the butt. Like you kind of have to balance out those. And by the way, this is just in reference to stuff. When you put faith in people, in a complex person with emotions and decisions and a whole variety of good and bad, holy and sinful intentions and beliefs and practices, the whole thing becomes much more complex. You trust a person because of your past experiences with them or the position that they hold. It could be a spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, coworker, teacher, pastor, fill in the blank. Faith in people is sometimes rewarded, but let's be honest, sometimes it's horrible. Sometimes it burns you terribly. Sometimes your faith is broken because someone was allowed to be in a position of authority they shouldn't have been, a pastor, a boss, a teacher. 
Sometimes that boyfriend presented a face to you at the beginning, but then as the relationship evolved, their true colors came out. Sometimes that coworker acted like they were on, their te- on your team until all of a sudden it didn't suit their personal interests anymore. Many of us have been so wounded by people that relationally speaking, we are checking the chair before we sit down every single time, inspecting the entire thing. I know, by the way, as I say that, there are some of us in the room where like faith is your spiritual gift and you're hearing this going, this sounds so sad for people. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. If faith is something that comes easy to you, like let us know because we all want to stare at you and just be like, how do I, how do, how do, I do what Bob does? Like, I just want to, man, I just want to trust people like that. But I think for many of us in the room, for many of us, we've been so wounded by people that it's just, it's just extremely difficult to extend faith to anyone anymore. Often the argument against religious faith is that Christianity, i.e. God, simply asks too much of you without enough evidence that the whole thing is real, right? Christianity demands that you live your life in a certain disciplined way and you follow these ethics and all these things. It demands all these things of your life, but it doesn't give enough evidence to justify altering your life that dramatically. If you've had a lot of broken faith in your life, parents, friends, lovers, authority figures, that argument makes a lot of sense because you're used to inspecting every inch of that chair. I mean, guys, God does ask a lot of you. He asks you to sacrifice your own self-interest to his glory for the sake of the kingdom. That's a big ask. Look at Joseph. Look at the price he paid to live a life of faith in God. His whole life was shifted and changed. God does ask a lot of his children. And if you've been burned a lot in life, for many of you, it just feels like too much. How can you possibly trust God when the stakes are this high? He asks for your whole life, your whole affections, your decision-making, your morals. That's a lot. And look how that has turned out for you in the past when you have freely and indiscriminately given out your yes to people. If there are many of us in this place are guilty of projecting the bad faith of our experience with earthly authority onto God himself. We look at our parents, our teachers, our spouses, our bosses, our pastors, fill in the blank, and we assume that God must be similar, but probably worse, because he has more authority than those people do in our lives. Beloved, this is not so. This is not who your God is. This is not the truth of the character of Yahweh, the the creator, the sustainer of you, the designer of you. It's not how he is. He does not abuse his authority in your life. He does not manipulate you. He does not seek to get you trapped and then wound you and hold his power over your head. Beloved, he loves you. He cares for you. He considers you. You. A speck in the cosmic reality. He doesn't just consider you madly in love with you. He sends his son to the earth to suffer and die and raise again on your behalf. He gives of himself for you. So easy when we've been wounded 
to look at the ask of Christian discipleship and go, I'm just not sure that's worth it. 10% of my income for the rest of my life? Like, I could buy a vacation home with that. You probably could. That's, I mean, I get it. But that's not the reality of God. It's not the reality of your relationship with the Father. That's not the defining characteristic of your relationship with the Father that he takes from you. No, 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 no. The defining characteristic of your relationship with the Father is that he gives to you abundantly and generously, constantly. <laughs> and if you consider your life for a moment, that rings true. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He designed you. He put together your DNA. He considered the intricacies of you. He built your body. He sustained you. He brought you into this world. He put breath in your lungs and a beat in your heart. He tells the very atoms that make up the molecules, that make up the cells, that make up your body to continue to exist. He sustains you. He seeks you out and calls you beloved. He opens your eyes and your heart and your, and your, your whole person to the beautiful truth of his gospel. And says, your sin doesn't get to define you. My son gets to define you. You get to have freedom. He draws you unto himself and says, you weren't made for this world. You weren't made for suffering. You weren't made for injustice. You were made for perfection. So let me give it to you. That's the heart of the father for you. What he asks of you is not him trying to rob you of your identity. It is him trying to help you see who you were made to be. Who he designed you to be. Who you actually are underneath the crust of the ruin of the sin and the curse on your soul. See, so often we fall into this trap of seeing the way the sin has corrupted us. And we think that's who I am. I love, I love sin. I love these terrible things. And when God asks me to sacrifice that, to, to hand away my selfishness, when God asks me to live for others and live for the idea of love and service, like that's, that's changing who I am. No, beloved, no. That is God the Father looking through the ravages of the curse on your soul and seeing the real you with his image stamped on it. The person he designed for eternity that has been marred and ruined by the curse. It is him calling you to be who you are. His beloved child. So, when we consider faith, the idea of trusting, trusting in future experiences, right? Based, based on past and present evidence. I guarantee each and every one of us, if we're honest, have a whole stack of earthly evidence telling us that people and authority figures can be terrible and rip you to shreds. Because that's the world we live in. But if you consider for a moment the weight of evidence, the character, the heart of the Father for you, beloved, you will see that faith is an easy investment. God is always trustworthy. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your yes. Even when that yes in the moment feels like it costs a lot, Joseph paid a high price to walk in faith and obedience to God. And yet look what God was doing through him. Look at the amazing gospel work God worked through his life and through his service and through his faithfulness and through his yes to God. Beloved, your yes in Christ is never wasted. It's never wasted. You can hand God your yes before you even know the question because he is that trustworthy. 
You can walk forward in faith and obedience regardless of your circumstances because he is that trustworthy. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of the heart of the Father for you. I'm going to end by reading a ludicrously long passage out of Hebrews chapter 11 where this art piece comes from. I'm going to read the whole of it because Joseph's an amazing example of faith. But Joseph is one small example in a massive line, generation after generation in this book, of people who saw God for who he was and believed him and walked in faith. And the, the, like the weight of the evidence is that the faith was never wasted. Chris, you want to come up here? I'm going to read this text to us. And then we're going to spend a couple minutes in prayer. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for. It's proof of what isn't seen. And by this, our ancestors, they were approved. See, by faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away. He did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, after he was delivered or warned about what was about had not yet been, was motivated by godly fear, he built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in a land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and did Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city, the city that has foundations, whose architect, whose very builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as numerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. Beloved, these all died by faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance. They greeted them. They confessed that they were foreigners, temporary residents on earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place. That is a heavenly place. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promise, yet he offered his one and only son, the one about whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, and he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. 
By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, Moses left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. For Moses persevered as one who sees him who's invisible. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. What more can I say? The time is too short. I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administrated justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenching the raging of fire, escaping the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured but didn't accept release so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated because the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these things were proved through their faith. For they did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, so they would not be made perfect without us. Therefore, beloved, since we have such a large, large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Beloved, you are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Give God your yes. You will not be wasted. Let's take a minute and pray to the Lord. Ask him what is what he might be asking of you today. See what he says. And in a minute, I'll pray for us and we'll continue on in song.